9 out of 10 startups fail. Women and minority-led companies receive less than 10% of all venture capital. This is an environment designed for failure. Startup Hype Man's mission is to use the power of story to make success inevitable, not the exception. And this podcast is designed for entrepreneurs to share lessons learned from their stories so that you can figure out what whatever it takes means for your company to make it. Let's kick it. I'm kind of at one point of failure as well right now, but fingers crossed, so far so good. From the Hype HQ recording studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I am your host and the Startup Hype Man, Raj Nation. Every week we bring you real talk and unpack the behind the curtain strategies with the entrepreneurs who are doing it or who have been there, done that, all to help your startup grow up and stand out. Join the Hype Nation to catch every new episode, plus get resources and other stuff that actually help you, not the whack promotional junk that other companies try to shove down your throat. All you have to do is add your email at startuphypeman.com. Ready for some real talk? Time now for me, Raj Nation, to turn it over to, well, me, Raj Nation, for this week's conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Today on the show, we welcome all the way from across, not even the pond, but I think two ponds, depending on two which ponds. Direction. Well, a very big pond. <laughs> depending <laughs> on which direction you travel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah all yeah, the way true. from Melbourne, Australia, we have Steve Glavesky joining us today. Steve is the co-founder and CEO of Collective Campus, which is one of Australia's fastest growing new companies named an AFR Fast Starter. It's a corporate innovation and startup accelerator based in Melbourne as well as Singapore. But that's not all. Steve's accolades or Steve's accomplishments and work does not stop there. He is the founder and chief architect of Lemonade Stand, which is essentially business school for kids, which teaches teaches children entrepreneurship. And rather than asking them, what do you want to do when you grow up? It teaches them, what problem do you want to solve so they are better prepared for the future? He's a founding investor as well of a company called Concrete.io, which helps Australians get into the residential property market without giving up their smashed avocado. He's the founder and host of the Future Squared podcast, which is receiving over 10,000 listens a month. It's included speakers such as Adam Grant, Adam Grant, Grant Cardone, Gretchen Rubin, Neil Patel, and many others. And oh yeah, he's also the book, of the brand new release, Employee to Entrepreneur, How to Earn Your Freedom and Do Work That Matters. That was a mouthful, but it was a mouthful of good stuff. Steve Glavesky, welcome to the show. Raj, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, and I wish I could just pay you to follow me around and just give me introductions like that wherever I go, man. That was awesome. <laughs> well, I guess I'm doing my job of hype, man, then, at least partially <laughs> successfully for you. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Our topic is how do you create rapid revenue growth, which I know is on the mind of many early stage founders, not just early stage, but once they're in that scale mode as well. So just sort of at a high level, why is this something that's on your mind and why is it important to you? Well, why is it important to me? I mean, a lot of startups are out there trying to solve big problems in the world and they may have a talented team and they may have a problem worth solving, they found a customer segment and the solution may solve that problem. But more often than not, they don't go about getting their product in front of the customer in an effective way. And so they can spend a hell of a lot of time uh, pursuing unqualified leads and sitting in 30 to one hour long meetings, be it on the phone or even worse in person, pursuing these leads. And what happens is you end up spending a lot of time and money 
paying people, spending money on marketing and advertising campaigns that go absolutely nowhere. And before you know it, you've run out of runway, even though you had a legitimate problem you were solving and a worthwhile solution, but you weren't great at targeting those customers um, in a way that was scalable and could essentially give you that lifetime value that was above and beyond that customer acquisition cost so you could build a scalable, um, sustainable business. We're going to dive so much more into this very juicy topic in just a couple of minutes. But first, let's learn more about who is Steve Glaveski. Now, you did, you know, you're in Melbourne now. You grew up there as well? Yeah, I grew up in Melbourne. I mean, I have lived in Sydney for about one year, uh, but I, I prefer Melbourne. Having said that, there are a lot of good points to Sydney, so I, I'll be careful with what I say there. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up, uh, who was your role model and why? Uh, growing up, who was my role model and why? I guess I would say Charles Barkley, Phoenix Suns MVP, 1993. Um, he was my role model because at the time, I was just a huge basketball fan. That's all I cared about. I, I would come home from school and spend like two or three hours every night just shooting hoops in the backyard on this little makeshift hoop on a brick wall. Um, and Charles Barkley for me was... Not, I guess he was a role model for a number of reasons. Obviously, he was, at the time, the best player in the NBA alongside Michael Jordan. Um, and he just carried a team, and he had a really sort of rabid attitude about him. Like, he would go toe-to-toe with guys like Shaq. And, and I think he dunked over Shaq once, which was, like, you YouTube that. That's pretty <laughs> um, So, yeah, as a nine-year-old, he was definitely one of my role models. And um, I guess I've always kind of been attracted to the underdogs because the typical choice back then would have been Michael Jordan. Um, who all the kids admired, but for me, it was Barkley, you know, his, his main adversary at the time. <laughs> well, my Chicago Bulls squashed your Phoenix <laughs> Suns in the 1993. They, they did, they did. Although I was in um, San Francisco last month and I got to see the Warriors play the Bulls and they beat the Bulls by 45 points. So yeah. the nine-year-old inside me was kind of <laughs> delighted. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not quite the same Bulls team anymore. It's interesting you say Charles Barkley, though, for the reason that he literally was quoted in an interview during his prime playing days saying, I am not a role model. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is true. I can say why he would say that. And, I, and I'm quickly learning, by the way, I mentioned to you before we started uh, recording that I started working with a company in Melbourne. I'm quickly learning mm-hmm. that the NBA is insanely popular in Australia. Yeah, the NBA... Uh... Of the American sporting codes, the NBA, and I guess the UFC, if you want to call that an American sporting code, or at least an American sporting institution, are very popular, whereas the baseball, the NFL, the hockey, not so much. Mm. And maybe, well, Luke Longley, actually, in those days, who was Bulls staple for three championships, I wonder if he had any influence or impact on Australian culture. I'm, I'm sure he did, although he was never the guy that people said, yeah, he's my favorite player. Like, yeah, oh, yeah he's <laughs> kind of cool, but we prefer Pippen and Jordan. <laughs> All right. So Charles Barkley's your role model growing up. He kind of represents the underdog to you. Now, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned the underdog component because I feel like the way your career has played out has in some elements been... I guess an underdog type of story. And I say that because it's not like you were a, you were starting companies, you know, left and right. It's not Mm -hmm. like you were right away, like you graduated college and you're like, I'm an entrepreneur or skipped college and said, I'm an entrepreneur. You actually have a pretty solid resume um, in the corporate world, working at, you know, the big four, Ernst and Young, KPMG. Um, and, I, and that's kind of what led ultimately to the creation of your book, Employed Entrepreneur. But can you just kind of give a brief overview of 
your time working at some of these bigger corporate companies, what did you learn that you're, you think applies to entrepreneurship that maybe the rest of the world is overlooking, the entrepreneur world is overlooking? Mm. So, I mean, like you said, I worked at the big four accounting firms and essentially I did that because I was looking to conform to society's expectations of what success looks like, uh, what my parents expected, what my peers expected. And I just started climbing that corporate ladder. And um, before I get to what happened there, I mean, with respect to what I learned, I mean, you learn a hell of a lot. And I always tell kids who ask me today, hey, should I just go and work in the corporate world for a few years or should I just get right into entrepreneurship? And I don't say one or the other is, is the way to, way to go because everybody's path is different. But I do say that you will learn a hell of a lot in the first, say, three to four years. There is a rapid growth curve or a learning curve rather. And then for me, it seemed to kind of taper off after that. And then you eventually start playing a lot more politics and forging alliances with the right people and uh, not necessarily learning as much. But initially, interpersonal skills, communication skills, you know, the research, the analysis, the planning, making sure you have your ducks in a row. Um, and even the, the political game playing, I mean, that can come in handy in various aspects, especially if, like me, you're now uh, selling to large organizations. Um, having an inside view on how they actually go about making purchasing decisions, how many heads you need to get aligned in order to sign off on a um, you know, purchase order, having that inside knowledge goes a long way if you're a B2B entrepreneur selling to large organizations. So I've definitely got an advantage there. And also having spent time in that space almost a decade, when I communicate that back to prospects, it does build a level of um, credibility. I'm not just some startup guy who's not spent a single day in a big organization saying, yeah, we can help you. But you know, unbeknownst to me, they've got all these cultural issues and processes and policies that inhibit the way they go about things. But you know, I'm across all that stuff so I can talk to that, which gives me yeah, I suppose you could say a competitive advantage of entrepreneurs who don't have that background. Now, while you were at these companies, did you have any, um, and I, I guess I'm asking this question, at least knowing the answer, but I'd like you to expand upon it. But did you have any um, experiences with what's called intrapreneurship? Uh, yeah, I did have some experiences at least trying to be intrapreneurial, which is you know, an entrepreneur inside a large company. And more often than not, what I found was the incentives weren't aligned. Uh, so whether it was my incentives or whether it was the incentives of the people I report to, they, had, they were basically protecting a business model that, or a business unit that was making money, it was growing, um, and there was no real incentive to innovate or to try something new, uh, you know, to explore what is today referred to as quote-unquote disruptive innovation. Uh, there was more or less an inclination towards just doing what we've always done. And so on a couple of occasions, whether it was at uh, KPMG, whether it was at Macquarie Bank, I'd propose new ways of doing things. Conversation would more or less take place in the meeting room. I'd go through some sort of slide deck that I prepared. And the result would always be, sounds good in theory, but let's put it on the back burner for now and revisit it later on. You know? And um, it's funny though, because on the very last day, with at my gig or on the very last day during my time with uh, Macquarie Bank, when my direct uh, manager at the time got up and said, hey, you know, he said a few words about me and said, you know, Steve was awesome. He came up with a lot of different ways he could, we could improve the business across different parts of the organization, none of which were actually 
even considered or pursued. But it was funny how <laughs> that was mentioned on my last day of the organization, uh, of my time with that organization. Having said that, you know, I did take out a lot from working with all of those brands. Um, a lot of learning, like I said, uh, with Macquarie Bank, I was learning about different aspects of financial services, uh, which I can now talk to when I'm trying to sell to big banks and insurance companies and, and things of that persuasion. But um, it's, it's a different world. I mean, entrepreneurship is no existing business model, no revenue coming in, a lot of uncertainty. You need to move quickly and you need to play offense. Big company, existing business model, existing revenue, shareholders you're accountable to, money coming in, no real uncertainty around who your customers are, what your product is, and so you need to play defense. And they require fundamentally a different mindsets and methods. That's an interesting take on it. The, the big corporation is playing defense, whereas the startup, the entrepreneur is playing offense. I've never thought about it in those terms. Um, mm. The way I kind of look at it is at a big company, I would say 99% of the time, maybe even more than that, your job is to maintain. Mm-hmm. And you're basically hired to do maintenance of a brand that already exists. Yeah. Whereas entrepreneurship, you're hired to create, or I mean, you hire yourself, right? But you are there to create and build from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's more or less the same thing. I think probably semantics, uh, defend, yeah, I, maintain, I, I, I like create, offense. That, yeah. um, so you get that frustration and, and that ultimately pulls you into entrepreneurship, away from intrapreneurship. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I found was that despite having these so-called trappings of success, the six-figure salary, the business class flights around um, Asia at the time, uh, deep down, I was comfortably miserable. And I'd find myself standing on train station platforms come 7 p.m. wondering what the hell did I even achieve or contribute today? And uh, for me, happiness is essentially living in accordance with your values. And for me, I want to create something that makes a difference that aligns with my natural inclinations and strengths, right? So, I, like every second or third person in the startup ecosystem these days, created an Airbnb for office space or a marketplace. And I was inspired to do that just based on my own observations of a lot of empty office space wherever I went um, in my life as a consultant. And I knew that there was a hell of a lot more entrepreneurs on the scene. Freelancing was coming up. Uh, there was a mobile workforce that was growing and they would all benefit potentially from flexible space, um, be it hourly, weekly, daily access to meeting rooms and desk space. Um, and so Hotdesk was born out of that. And um, you know, the, the, the side note on Hotdesk was that I developed a prototype while I was still working full-time at Macquarie Bank, uh, spent a little more than $2,000 building that out with an Airbnb script and a web developer I found on freelancer.com. And once I had the prototype, I proceeded to Google how to write a press release and um, tried my hand at writing one sent that out to about 100 journalists whose emails I found on, on Twitter. Nowadays, there's lots of growth hacking tools to help you do that. And lo and behold, uh, 99 of them completely ignored it. And <laughs> one, of them, <laughs> one of them got back to me. So that just happened to be a journalist at The Australian, which is one of our biggest newspapers. Um, they went ahead and published that article a couple of weeks later after an initial conversation with me. And three months later, uh, an investor, early stage investor, um, basically decided to invest $150,000 in the business, which isn't a lot of money, but it was enough for me to say, okay, I'm going to give this entrepreneurship thing a crack at least one year, and then we'll see where we go from there. Very nice. Very nice. So then ultimately, uh, what ends up happening with Hotdesk then over the next few years? 
Uh, so Hotdesk, over the next two years, essentially uh, built out the supply side to about 1,300 locations across Asia-Pac. Uh, so everywhere from Melbourne to Sydney to Singapore to Beijing, we had space everywhere. However, any marketplace entrepreneur will tell you that building the supply side is a lot easier than building the demand side. Uh, and in this case, we had revenue coming in, but not as much as I would have liked. One of the other nuances to the platform that prevented us from getting recurring revenue was the fact that if you booked a meeting room or a desk for a day or a week and you liked it, you would then negotiate directly with the operator. You will not, you will not come back onto hot desk to rebook, um, which is not like Airbnb where mm. you know I was in LA last month, stayed at an awesome beachside uh, pad in Laguna Beach and it wasn't like at the end of that I was going to say, hmm, let me contact the landlord. I think I'm going to extend my stay by a couple of years. You know, it doesn't work that way with Airbnb. So Airbnb, you get the recurring uh, bookings because you're always traveling around from place to place, be it for work or business. Um, but one thing I really took out of that, despite learning a hell of a lot about uh, different entrepreneurial methods, tools, and techniques, was the fact that if I was going to play the long game with Hotdesk, I needed to truly believe in what I was doing. And come you know, two years into that journey, I just realized that I had no desire to be what I felt was a glorified real estate agent. Um, so I needed to take what I had learned, but then apply it to something that truly aligns with what I want to create in the world. Let's fast forward now a little bit to Collective Campus, uh, which starts in 2014, and you're, you're still operating today as CEO. So as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, Collective Campus is a corporate innovation and startup accelerator uh, based out of Melbourne. You also have one in Singapore as well. The mission is to unlock the latent potential of organizations to create more impact for humanity and lead more fulfilling lives. Can you just kind of give us, um, you know, in addition to that, sort of like the 60-second overview of what it is you guys do on a daily basis? Yeah, so Collective Campus, essentially, we work with large organizations, startups, and children. Um, so with large companies, it's capability building programs, it's corporate accelerator programs, partnering them with startups, and it's also culture change programs. When it comes down to the work we do with kids, that's a lemonade stand program. Uh, anything from, we've had kids as young as seven years old come through that program, kids as old as 15, um, and we've had over a thousand children come through that where they essentially learn the fundamentals of rapid experimentation, prototyping, marketing, and pitching their ideas. Um, and we've just turned that into an online platform that we'll be scaling through English speaking markets in April. So I'm excited about that. But uh, it's been a crazy ride, you know, like I said, um, almost five years. And during that time, worked with about 60 big Fortune 500 companies and have incubated close to 100 startups um, who've raised about 25 million US dollars in that time. So that's fantastic. Fun. Yeah. And on the corporate side, you know, you've, you've pulled in some pretty big names. You've you know, worked with you like National Australia Bank, Microsoft, MetLife, Deloitte, IBM, Asahi, like et cetera, et cetera. So you're obviously doing something right. So let's dive into the meat of our topic question for today, which is around how do you create rapid revenue growth? Now, let's kind of approach this from the angle of when we say rapid revenue growth versus just revenue growth, what, what's coming to mind for you and, and, why, and why the operative word of rapid? Uh, well, it really depends on the base that you're starting at. But if I was to grow by, say, 5% a year, uh, that's not really rapid, right? But we're talking about 5 to 10% a month. Um, and it really depends where you are in that growth trajectory because if you're very early on in your 
life cycle, then it might be 50% a month or even more. Um, our business, uh, Collective Campus, we've been growing on an annual basis of between 50 and 70% a year. We've been doing that for three, no, four financial years in a row, um, which basically means that if you extrapolate that out using valuation methods, we could value our business at about 20 to 30 times what we make based on the payback period. So it's hard to maintain that type of growth, but there are methods to our madness that support that. So I'm happy to um, dive into that. Yeah. Let's talk through some of those methods. What would you say if someone's looking at, okay, we need to improve our revenue growth rate. What would be a good step one? Yeah. Well, good step one is really aligning who the customer segment is. So we're talking geography, we're talking industry, we're talking role with your value proposition and making sure that's tight because you could be looking, for example, in our business, we could be looking at telecommunications, financial services, um, education, healthcare. We could be looking at HR managers, CTOs, um, sales managers, finance managers, but who really matters? Like, where is this going to resonate the most? And in our case, we found a lot of upswing with legal services um, and heads of HR in that space in terms of uh, the response rate we get from emails, from phone calls, from whatever it is, it's, it's the highest for that segment. So initially, what you want to do is not just jump to conclusions, like map out what are the potential variables and then run experiments across those to see where you get the most bites on average and then double down on them. Then what you want to do is try and uh, automate or outsource as much of that initial lead generation process as possible. So, in, But not just use some off-the-shelf tool, be smart about it. So in our case, we have certain keywords that we track. Now, one of those keywords could be, uh, say, digital transformation. Now, we'll use a tool like BuzzSumo to track that. Um, so anytime an executive gets mentioned in the media for digital transformation, we've got a VA who picks that up, extracts that person's name, as well as the name of the publication um, and the headline, and that all gets imported into a Google sheet, which automatically gets transferred to a tool we've got called Mixmax, which is an email outreach tool. Um, so that personalizes the email and it might say something like, oh, hey Raj, saw the email, in, saw the article in the New York Times where you were talking about digital transformation at JP Morgan. Just so happens that's the kind of work we do. We've worked with other banks such as XYZ. If you'd like to book a short 10-minute conversation, here's a link. Um, and that's super targeted, but that all happens in the background. Like I end up with between five and 10 conversations a week just on the back of that. And that's just one of many strategies. So that way you spend your time on prospects who are much more likely to convert because they've already demonstrated that they're spending money on this. They've got appetite. They're talking to the media about it. They're building a brand and an identity around it. Um, and we know that we've got case studies that align with what they're doing um, and a value proposition that aligns with what their objectives are. So we're much more likely to close those deals. And the more of those we close, we just use those. They go back into our pool of case studies and it's easier to grow from there. But once you have that pool of existing clients, um, it's a question of going back to them and saying, hey, who else in your organization could benefit from our service? You know, you, we've worked with you for a while now. You've seen the value. Who else at, say, JP Morgan can benefit? Um, here's an email script we've prepared that you can just send to anyone in the organization to introduce them to us. And it could also be other associates you've got at other organizations who might want to work with us. That's one thing. Then the other thing is really upselling those existing clients as well. So I guess the three-step process there, as I'm thinking out loud, is 
be really targeted and segmented with your outreach and automate and outsource as much of that as possible. Two, uh, focus on referrals. And yep. three, I, focus yeah, on the upsell. lead gen process is what I had there as step two uh, through the strategies you mentioned. And then three is mm-hmm. now the upsell. Well, the upsell and the referral process as well. Sure, upsell and referral. Let's, I want to talk a little bit more about part of step two, which mm-hmm. was the bringing in virtual assistants. Now, the, the, what's really interesting to me about this is when we typically think around, about rapid revenue growth, we don't think about it in terms of productivity. But one of the things that you highlight in your book, Employee to Entrepreneur, is this sort of this notion of like productivity and the $10 task. Can you just sort of talk through here like the logic behind that and, and, and why you found VAs to be so important? Yeah, so the $10 task is anything rudimentary that doesn't really require much thinking. Um, for example, it could be jumping into your accounting software and reconciling invoices to um, money received, right? Like that, You don't need to be doing that, especially you don't need to be doing that for an hour to two a week. And with all of the accelerator programs we've run, with all of the startups that have applied through, come through our programs, I've had the opportunity to ask the question of about 500 startups. Um, I literally put up this table on a, on a whiteboard and the table comes out of the book 8020 Sales and Marketing by Perry Marshall. And it's got $10 an hour tasks, 100, uh, 1,000 I believe, and then 10,000. And when I ask people, what percentage of your time do you spend on these $10 an hour tasks? On average, 50% of their time. Now, if you're spending, say, 20 hours a week, say it's a 40-hour work week for argument's sake, over the course of the year, 48 weeks, uh, 960 hours you're spending on these pointless tasks that you should really be paying someone $10 an hour to work on. That's $9,600 a year. Now you've got all this time back to invest in sales, strategy, marketing, to invest in stuff that aligns with your natural inclinations um, and strengths where you're going to create a hell of a lot more value than you will by reconciling you know, invoices in um, your accounting software, right? So that's just something that not enough entrepreneurs are thinking about. Um, the outsourcing piece, the automation piece is obviously that comes before outsourcing because if you can automate it, great. You don't rely on humans who are fallible and susceptible to human error. You can just automate that and then humans can do anything that can't be automated. That is a rudimentary step-by-step process. You focus on your strengths and you create way more value doing that. Um, Just quick on that. I mean, if people want to learn more about that, I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review called The Case for the Six-Hour Workday, which deep dives into the different strategies you can apply in that space to just get way more out of your day. That's a hell of a name to an article. I'm sure that's gotten a lot of hits. Um, you know, and I, and, I, and I like where you're going with that. And that's, that's quite honestly, like that's the state of my business right now is where mm-hmm. I'm finally at the point where I'm like, I need to automate and outsource some of this stuff oh, yeah. because I, am, I really looked at it and I was like, why am I, I'm a creative guy. I should be spending more of my time on creativity and less mm-hmm. of it on the rudimentary task. So like my step one of that outsourcing is actually, you know, when this podcast episode goes live, I will not have be I will not be the one who edited it and got it <laughs> online. I will have found someone and and built a process for them to follow to get this thing online. Um, and, and it's interesting that again that this is an area that's overlooked. And you you know you mentioned like you know a lot of entrepreneurs aren't thinking about this because I feel like productivity is sort of that like nebulous concept. Where we're like, yeah, I know I need to be more productive, but mm. when you, it, it's different because 
most people aren't articulating it in the way you are, where you're putting actual dollars and cents to your time and then extrapolating out, right? Like, like in the book, you talk about, hey, if you're spending two hours a week on these $10 tasks over the course of a year, or sorry, two hours a day on $10 tasks, over the course of a year, you're losing thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah, thousands and thousands of dollars. And that doesn't even account for the opportunity cost of potentially winning deals in that time that could be worth hundreds of thousands more. Yeah, um, it's like the double negative, right? It's like, yeah. it's like if you're on a road trip and you stop to eat, you don't just lose that time stopping to eat. That's time that you could be spending on the road. So mm-hmm. it's double the loss in time. It's the same thing. Yeah. Here, right? It's double. And it compounds. Loss. It yeah. compounds. But a great example of, uh, you mentioned the podcast. Like there are... Um, there are ways these days where you can essentially record a Facebook live video and have that automatically turn into a podcast episode, a YouTube video, an audiogram, and then post on all the social media platforms. In addition to an automatic transcript that gets published as a blog and medium, like literally all you do is record the Facebook live video and then you use uh, repurpose.io, Zapier, and a number of other tools to just talk to each other. But if you were to do that yourself, including the podcast editing, you're talking about seven to eight hours. But all you've done is recorded a Facebook live video, 30 minutes, you had some fun, you talked to someone, maybe it was a Q&A, and that's all you did. All the other stuff, automated, and you can just move on to more creativity. And the thing about focusing on the stuff that, that you're good at, the stuff that you enjoy is you feel good at the end of the day, and that just mm. feed back, feeds back into that motivation to keep going. So Yeah, not worn down. There's one more topic or one more concept I want to touch on here before we wrap up, and it's crazy how quickly this conversation has gone. <laughs> <laughs> it is... I really like it. You talk about it in the book. Um, it's something that I have been working on as well this year, and it is the concept of the 13-week year. Can you mm-hmm. talk about that in terms of goal setting and being able to achieve that rapid revenue growth? Sure. So I was actually inspired to explore that by um, Alex Hutchinson, who wrote the book Endure. So he was a former Runner's World uh, writer. And what he found was in a marathon, uh, you've got this um, finishing kick. So in the last kilometer or two or the last mile, uh, to use American terms, people just find this <laughs> reserve of energy and they get a lot faster. And that's because they know the end is coming. Now, in a business setting, you might work to annual goals. And therefore, people may be operating at about 50 to 60% of their capacity. And then come you know, uh, the November or or early December, they just ramp up. But if you operate on, say, 13-week years, um, you'll find that you'll get that finishing kick for maybe three or four weeks of those 13-week years times four, and therefore you've got about 16 weeks a year where people are upping the ante um, rather than just the three or four weeks at the end of the year. And by doing that as well, it gives you an opportunity to check in more frequently on those goals as well and whether or not we need to be adapting them because setting those 12-month goals, 12 months is a long time in today's business landscape and you don't want to commit yourself to the wrong thing for such a long amount of time. So three months not only increases productivity and output, but again, it gives you a healthy sanity check because you might get to the end of those three months and realize certain things you were pursuing didn't go very well um, and you can ask the question, why not? Should we be changing course here? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, you know, for me, it, it really helped me break down not just month to month, but really week to week, where should Mm. I be spending my time? And am I tracking with the goals, you know, that I've set for myself? So I think it it makes tracking and accountability that much easier. And you are able to break down so much better, like, what does it actually take to get to that goal? 
Yeah, it's 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 like that question that a lot of you know motivational gurus will ask. You know, if you had to achieve your ten year goal in the next six months, what would you do? Mm. It's kind of, I mean, you know, as, as cliche as that question might be, it does really work. So when you constrain your year to thirteen weeks or even one month, like what are the one, two, or three key things that are really going to move the needle for us? Whereas if you look at the whole year, it's like oof, there's so much time, and you can get complacent. Yeah. Now to just summarize what we've talked about on this episode, um, sort of your three-step process towards rapid revenue growth is number one, align your customer segment segment with your value proposition and really get deep on who that person you're targeting is. Not just, hey, not just people at, not just this type of company, but who's the person at the company you're trying to get in touch with. Um, Number two is start automating a lot of your activities, specifically lead generation and bring in a virtual assistant where you can, uh, the tools you mentioned, was it BuzzSumo? BuzzSumo was one. Mixmax is another. Uh, and a third tool, uh, LinkedIn Sales Navigator, will also help you identify media mentions as well as new hires. So one thing we didn't mention was if someone has joined an organization with the role that you're looking for, so a head of innovation at a bank, that will get triggered. You can pick that up and your VA can send them an email and say, hey, Raj, congratulations on the new role as innovation manager at JP Morgan blah, 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 per, per the previous script, right? So, yeah. and that works quite well because they've just joined. They're not working with anyone else yet. It's an opportunity to build that relationship nice and early. Awesome. Step three was figuring out the upsell from there. We also talked about the idea of, again, productivity, getting rid of your $10 tasks, getting them off your plate and drilling things down to the 13-week year. Before we wrap up, and by the way, for everyone listening, if you missed it earlier, these are the strategies Steve has put into place with Collective Campus to, as he said, create growth of 50 to 70% year over year. So don't think this is just like, I don't know, some putts coming on the show being some like, yeah, be more productive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know uh, where would be the best place to find you, get in touch with you, and even listen to your podcast? Sure. They can find me at steveglaveski.com. That's G-L-A-V-E-S-K-I. Um, podcast is over at futuresquared.xyz and they can find the book at employeetoentrepreneur.io um, where they can download a free bonus bundle with lots of tips and tricks on sales, marketing, uh, and productivity as well. Yeah. Again, the book is Employee to Entrepreneur. And I don't want you as a listener to get uh, sort of misled by that title if you're already an entrepreneur, because I've been diving into this book recently and you know, I've been an entrepreneur for the last five years and there's a lot that I'm gaining out of this, even though I've been doing this for five years. So don't think that just cause you're, you know, already full time that this is not going to benefit you. I, I, I only recommend things that I actually am using or reading or consuming myself. So this is definitely one that I recommend for everyone. Um, Steve, we end our show in a just very simple way by each of us giving our top line takeaways from our conversation today. I'll go first, then I'll toss it to you. So the topic today was how do you create rapid revenue growth? Um, my top line takeaway or answer for this is yes, it's about the sales strategy, but look at the parts you're ignoring um, and really look at where can you essentially create more productivity in your processes in order to focus on the high value things to grow your company quickly. Steve, top line piece of advice, how do you create rapid revenue, rapid revenue growth? Uh, for me, it's really about 
you've spoken about the the technique and the methodology there. I'm going to bring it back to the mindset um, and borrow a leaf out of my own personal story, which was unhappy doing hot desk, much happier doing something that aligns. So really hone in on what that purpose is, because if you truly believe in what you're doing, entrepreneurship is really hard. But if you believe in it, you're going to get up day after day after day and just do, you know, put in the hard yards. Um, so don't discount the value of really believing in what you're doing. I'm surprised your takeaway answer was not the fabulous diagram we have on the whiteboard behind you. I mean, <laughs> obviously everyone listening cannot see this, but he's got these paper cutouts of Super Mario climbing the staircase at the end of the level, jumping over the Koopa and the star and getting to the flag. So, so that, was, yeah. that, that wasn't the key to it all? Well, look, I like to think that there's a multivariate reason for why people get, get to rapid revenue growth. But with, um, with the chart, visualizing is, is important. So we've got, you know, at the very top where the, star, where the uh, flagpole is, we've got the princess there and we've also got the revenue amount. So we're always motivated first to get uh, Pass the, the, the point. Yeah, and then we've got the little toadstool, and then we've got the star, and then we've got the princess. So we're motivated to save the princess every single year. That's awesome. That's awesome. He is Steve Blavesky. Steve, thank you so much for joining the show today. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. That brings us to a close. Did you like what you heard? Did it tingle your earbuds? Support your startup ecosystem and share this episode with another founder to help them. If you don't have anyone in mind, then leave a rating and review of the show on iTunes so more entrepreneurs can learn about it. And if you want more, head to startuphypeman.com and click on the knowledge section to get a bonus blog post written by this week's guest where they unpack the topic even more. Remember to subscribe to the show on iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Startup Hype Man is more than a podcast. In fact, we support startups across the United States and globally develop sales and marketing acumen with messaging that stands out to customers and stands apart from competitors. Learn more and fill out a form at StartupHypeMan.com if you want to chat. Shout out to this week's guests for spending their time with us and shout out to music artist Sir the Baptist for providing our show's theme song. Catch you next time. Hype Man out. Word up. Raise up. Got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This dance with the devil, bro. Instead of sundown, too. Yeah. This dance with the devil, bro. Tell me what you're gonna do. This dance with the devil, bro. And if you can't get it loose, then they fall into the truth. It got you howling at the moon. Yeah. This dance with the devil, bro. Instead of sundown, with the devil